Welcome to the Nahrain Network podcast series. Today we're with Lana Haddad, Regional Director of Tari. This is podcast number two. Hello, Lana. Hello, Mahia. Thank you very much. In the last podcast, we were speaking about the old rules of the game regarding cultural heritage in Iraq and how those could be reformed, updated and revised. We were speaking also about the role of local communities, foreign archaeologists could engage with communities in a, in a more engaged, more improved way. And we also spoke about certain practices that have lingered on for quite a few decades. When you speak about the old rules, what do you mean exactly? So how Iraq is dealing with heritage, the rules were, or the regulation, the laws, etc., were not really updated to the challenges and problems we are facing. And when they were set, they are coming from a time where the topics of like decolonization were not when were not known let's say and these are things that need to be changed because iraq with its modern borders is a child of colonizing period let's say archaeology is a child of colonization and like we know especially in the us but also now more and more in europe the topic of decolonization getting more and more present in different fields of academic work, but also like uh, in uh, politics and uh, communities. And here in Iraq, this topic is actually not, not being spoken about. People are not aware of it, while we are very much affected by it to this day. People have, unfortunately, what I feel in everywhere in the world, a very short memory. So many problems that we are facing in this country, sourcing back to the imperial time, to the British mandate uh, in Iraq. Of course, with all the times of like when the country got its independence and then a state coup and then again another state coup and then decades of war. One forgets these things because one is so busy with so many problems that are actually existing in your living reality. But I always feel like sometimes you cannot solve a problem if you're only facing its facade. You need to go to the roots to understand, okay, how can I improve things? It's not about like only like pointing fingers or something. It's about understanding the past and the root of issues that we have to see in which way we can improve things. So when we come to heritage, there needs to be a lot of big changes because there was the first big change that when they set the rule to say, okay, all artifacts that are excavated stay in the country. This was a very important rule that was set. But now we live in an era where we have so many excavations, objects stay in the country, but the information about what was actually excavated at that site is taken away of the country and is not transferred really in a good way or in a friendly way to the community because we have like all these international conferences where uh, archaeologists go and present their work and share their research with others and then other archaeologists refer to these researchers and do more accumulation of knowledge in Iraq itself like the uh, community or the, the, the academic field here is having not this access. So here is, for example, where we need other regulations. 
where like, okay, every project should have, for example, Yanni, a budget to translate their publication to the local language of where the site is located. So with this, I'm speaking either in Arabic or in uh, Kurdish. And this is important to decolonize uh, archaeological fieldwork because otherwise it's like, again, a foreign mission comes, works and goes back and they have the big benefit because after an excavation season, what is left for the Iraqis? It's okay, we have a lot of objects and because archaeological fieldwork is changed now, it's more in working in detail than it used to be 100 years ago. 100 years ago, four people come and they have over 100 workmen and they have a long time season and they dig out all these big statues and amazing other objects where then half of it goes to their country and half of it stays here. This was like how it was before. But nowadays, it's so different. So there are no big findings. There are not big statues. There are not physical impressive uh, things. And I'm saying physical impressive things before the view of an amateur, for example, net form for archaeologists. I think many archaeologists get more excited when they see a shirt that uh, has painting on it or an inscription on it. So there, there needs to be like, these are some examples of changing rules and being up to date and decolonizing rules, because sometimes it's not enough to say the objects stay in the country. And just on the on this very important word, decolonizing, it's something that's been used in archaeology in relation to Africa, the Middle East. Do you think it's something that in Iraq itself, that Iraqi archaeologists, the heritage experts, understand do they do they understand the legacies of colonial influence in the country i mean because in your unique experience you you have you straddle different worlds you're iraqi you have you've lived in europe you can you can read the multiple languages speak in multiple languages you know these different cultures so it's it's not easy is it for a country that has, as you said, uh, experienced multiple wars, instability, to come to terms with decolonizing cultural heritage. It's something even new in many ways as a concept. Is this something that you're actively working on in terms of your research and, and work? How do you deal with these issues when it comes to working with Iraqi archeologists? I have met very few colleagues who are aware of this topic, to be honest. Most of colleagues are not very much aware of decolonization and the imbalance between them and international archaeologists. I have witnessed many times colleagues who were so happy to have uh, the opportunity to work with foreign mission and always admiring their discipline, their work, their knowledge, their efforts, their that they are actually willing to come from Europe to Iraq to work there and serve the Iraqi country. And I smile when I hear this. I can understand from where this comes from. And then I softly start to open up a dialogue to make also understand of like, yes, it is good. I love international work. I love exchanging. I love um, people from different cultures and backgrounds come together and share their experience and work together. But sometimes there is a power imbalance and this needs to be recognized because also this is important to 
value oneself and their own work. Because otherwise, we cannot develop if we only look up without differentiating their actual work to Western academics. Yani, there, there, there needs to be an, an equal balance in between. The, there needs to be more of the feeling of like we work together because there are information that I can share with you and there are information that you can share with me. And this is something where I always try to um, open up this dialogues. I'm like, yeah, but every mission coming to Iraq, they have like a goal. They have like a research question they are looking for. They are not coming here because they just have nothing else to do and like to help out Iraqi heritage. No, there is a goal and they have like ambitions to do things, to do work, and they have like interest in, uh, in specific fields and they do their job. So I, I really try to make them understand this, not in to endanger the friendship and the collegial uh, co-working, but also like to just push for more having equal values and having also the understanding of like, how, how does it come that an Italian mission, a German mission, a French mission, a British mission, an American mission come to our country and work? Where does this idea come from? So I build up a lot of dialogues and this, I, I, every time when I open up these dialogues and we talk about how actually archaeology started and how it changed and why it changed, many of my colleagues are actually like, ah, I was aware of it, but I never thought about it. So because there are no dialogues or no conversations about this topic, so it's not, it's not a big deal. But this is actually important when we talk about like, if we want for the future having better regulation in the country. So our archaeologists who currently work in the field, they need to have an understanding of how archaeology actually developed, how the rules developed, how the laws changed to see for our current situation how we need to change again the laws to improve the situation. Not only the working with foreign mission, but also like having a site where a private business owner wants to do a project there and there is an archaeological site. There are laws, but they are not strong. and They are not simple to, to deal with. So again, these are things that needs to be um, discussed. And where the actual archaeologists now working in the fields they need to be aware of that. So while they developing themselves in getting more experience, being aware of all these subjects and decolonization is a very, very big subject that needs to be uh, worked on. You've mentioned that there are some countries that are working in Iraq. Those are more or less the same countries that were there working there 100 years ago, 90 years ago during the colonial period. Is it more or less the same countries that are there now that form the bulk of foreign uh, archaeology interests in, in Iraq? Yes, we have a few more now, but like the core are the French, Italian, German, British and the American. So these are like the big ones. And then you have more countries coming in and being more involved into um, Iraqi heritage. And they are like Poland, Czech Republic, but with very small projects. And you have also Iran being more involved in um, heritage in this country, especially when it comes to uh, restoration projects with different ideas and ideologies that they bring in with. 
Would you say from your own experience as an archaeologist who's worked on excavation projects in Iraq, but also in conservation, that there is a significant amount of competition? Or is there, is there more competition than coordination and partnership? Or is it the other way? I have witnessed some competitions between projects. It's not a lot, but there is. It's, it's existing. It's not always simple and peaceful. It's like territorial competition that I have seen of like who gets the permission to work on this site and who not. And where also like politics get involved into it, which is, which is very scary, to be honest, and uh, a little bit disappointing. But again, it's when you don't have strong regulations, when you don't have strong policies in this field, it's, it's a very complicated and complex field. For collaboration, there are projects who collaborate better than others. And um, I think this ends up on the individuals in running those projects who are more willing and interested in collaborating with other teams and sharing their information and knowledge. But again, it's not like all of them doing it. And I think any, it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, complicated and complex thing. I think also like the uh, local antiquity directorates, they need to understand that they need to create this space for this collaboration because there are specific time periods where excavation and surveys are happening. There needs to be space from the antiquity directorate to bring these people together to share these informations more um, because it's more beneficial for them, for the teams, for everybody. And I really hope that in the future that the antiquity directorates, the local antiquity directorates, see their role and responsibility in this more too, to provide a space to bring these different researchers, academics uh, together in like sharing their fieldwork, because this can improve and save time a lot in the field. On the note of uh, knowledge production, which of course touches on quite a few things you've spoken about, um, what is the purpose of knowledge production when it comes to Iraq? Is it to reinforce certain understandings and approaches to Iraq, to the Middle East? Or is it a search for new knowledge? Does it feed into existing narratives, agendas? And how does it benefit, if any, Iraq itself? You're saying also that, you know, before there was this kind of physical extraction, now there's this kind of knowledge extraction. Are we just in this uh, a legacy now where it's just a continuation of, le- of, of the colonial period? And those are kind of things that I think are quite important because... If it is indeed a focus on knowledge, who is that knowledge for? How do Iraqis benefit from any of this? If we look into the society, many people would think ah, Iraqis are actually not interested into heritage and history in, in, in their local identity. But I say no, actually, it's very much the opposite. People are actually here very much willing and wanting to understand the past better than um, they are doing it now. And as we talked about it before, there are not many resources to do it in a proper way, to have a nice resource where you can really like read and understand things better. I have met many young people from film documentary makers to artists who try in their work to deal a lot with the heritage of Iraq, 
like if we if we look at and it, it was always there this eager of like connecting with the heritage if we look at the beginning of modern iraqi artwork there is a lot of references to the ancient time or to the medieval time with architectural elements etc and when we look at uh, 2019 with um, the demonstration happened at the tahrir uh, square etc that went along for months and months and months and this was a generation that was born after 2003 who were not born in a time where they had access to better education materials like other generations like my mother's generation my mother actually grew up with knowing a lot about mesopotamia only because of her school books and this and also like doing school trips to sites etc which was very normal to uh, at that time but the generation after 2003 the the freedom to travel inside the country was restricted the freedom sometimes any in, in specific periods in your own city to travel from one place to another was very much restricted sectorism was growing like depending on from where to where you go you could have been killed just because you have the wrong name that uh, is linked to a sectarian uh, path. So you have a generation that have faced more violence than any other generation before in Iraq. And when I'm saying facing violence, I'm saying like direct violence in your private daily life. It's not like facing violence in the war that is in the borders of the city. No, violence that is inside your environment inside your city inside your neighborhood so when you have this generation growing up with such a violence and being bombarded with information and propaganda talking about sectorism making a difference between your faith between your language between anything of your identity it does not build up a healthy society but somehow when we look at these young people who were on the streets in 2019 they rejected this they rejected the sectorism they rejected this violence they rejected they they rejected the government they rejected the terrorism they rejected all of this negativity and then if we look at the street art that was produced at that time many many of them are referring again to their heritage. So when we look at the uh, protest in 2019 and the artwork, the street artwork that was done by these young people, and not done only in Baghdad, but also in the South, in Basra, in Karbala, etc. When we look, the artwork was against sectorism. It's about coexisting. It's about finding your identity in your heritage where many many symbols from cuneiforms to specific statues etc were used to represent them and also like many uh, topics of empowering women etc so you could see that this generation that has not seen a peaceful time in their lifetime just growing up in a corrupted state in one conflict after the other that they were fed up how things were running so this shows like the current situation of how the government is creating the identity of the country was rejected by the people by these young people 
and they own claim of building up their identity has its root in connecting with their heritage. And connecting with their heritage means for these young people also to live and love the diversity that goes along with it. And this is very important because then you can see, okay, there is interest in having more understanding of heritage because what are the resources that they have? There are the school books and there are not the most entertaining parts. And then there is social media. And in social media, when we look at Facebook, if we look at Instagram, if we look at Twitter, there are many pages who talk about Mesopotamia or heritage of Iraq, modern history of Iraq, where there are a lot of pictures shared, etc. But there's not a lot of information that is shared. It's more like visual, visual identity of heritage and history that is shared and produced. And people like it. And this is the resource that they go back to. Because how many times I have been in, this, in, in, um, in conversations where people say, yeah, I have read on Facebook this and this about Babylonia. I have read this and this on this social media platform about uh, Uruk. Um, so the current resources that they are taking is uh, from social media. And this is also like where all the discussions come from. But these sites are well visited and people take them in their daily consumption. So there is the interest and there is the will. And also if we look into, uh, because in the beginning I said, there was no free freedom in traveling inside the country before. This changed again. Because now you have tourism agencies who bring people to these ancient sites. So they are more accessible again. And these buses are booked out every time. So there are always like 40 people in one group going to a heritage site. And people are interested. So there is a big interest because people want to know more. People want to, have to, to redefine their identity and they want this rich heritage that they have being part of their identity. So this is where it's very, very important, where we need actually to focus more in producing products that share this desire or this wish to have your heritage identity being clarified and not having it as a propaganda tool to build up nationalism. No, to make understand like how rich and diverse the heritage here is and that all of us are part of it and have also a responsibility in it. But this only can happen if we have educational material and not only the school books that are existing, because this is not enough, because people need material that is outside of school to follow up something that they are interested in. I guess in, let's call it a post-ISIS Iraq, we've had a lot of destruction in those three years, 14, 15, 16. And then you had the protests, the national protests in October 2019. Do you see any kind of demographic changes? And you're speaking about the uses of culture heritage in protest in a way that's come from this kind of anti-sectarianism, anti-Daesh, if you like, even armed groups and so on calling for a homeland. Could you tell us more about the generational change that you're witnessing and how it's affecting approaches or engagement in right spoken about tourism increasing interest in tourism? And I've, I think we spoke about it before, how 
there is hope. I guess it comes from the generational change, uh, demographic change, or youth-based population. Could you tell us a bit more about that and how Iraq could potentially harness that as a resource for cultural heritage? There is actually one very important example that, in my opinion, we do not talk about that much as it should be. Because when Daesh was in Mosul and their first attempt in um, putting explosions to Nabi Yunus, people gathered and stopped them. They demonstrated against Daesh, knowing that they're actually putting their heads for, uh, um, knowing that they're putting their life in danger. Um, they have saw like how serious Daesh is in destructing heritage sites. If it's a Sufi tomb or a Shia shrine or whatever, they have seen like they have no limitation if they want to behead a human being or if they want to destruct an old heritage site, they do it. So the people in Mosul, when they saw that Daesh is approaching Nabi Yunus and trying to install explosions, they went and demonstrated and stopped them actually for going further. Of course, as we know, Daesh went again during nighttime on another day a few weeks later and finished their job in putting the explosions and um, destroying the site fully. But seeing that young people knowing that they are actually putting their own life in danger in protecting a site that is important for the identity of the city for all three big monolithic religions from Judaism, Islam, Christianity. And this shows how people actually are connected to their heritage and wanting to protect it. This is, I think, very, very important to see, like they are actually Iraqis who would risk their own life to do this. It's not only about talking about saving heritage, it's really like risking their life against such a group. This is one thing. And we talked about the protest, how people use the artwork to connect with their heritage again, and also like being anti-sectorism. But we see here, we have a big, big chance now, because we see like there is this desire in building up a new identity that is far away from propaganda. Because during the Ba'ath period, heritage was very much used as a propaganda material, where we can remember seeing pictures of Saddam Hussein that he puts himself in line with the old kings in building up this country, etc. And people are tired of propaganda. People want just like more an identity that is, that is not taking sides, but that has roots in this area. So this is the differences. And if we look what happened after the Gulf War and what happened after Daesh, there is a big difference in this country and in this generation. When we look at the events after 2003, the state of Iraq became from year to year weaker and weaker. The society became weaker and weaker. The society get separated from each other. Violence was a day-to-day -day thing where you could not trust anymore 
your neighborhood because you don't know if somebody is working for the other side, etc. And there was so much of car explosions, of destructions, the freedom of movement again, as I said before, was restricted. So there was no space to build up any hope. There was no space to build up an independent identity from political sides. And there was no security. But if we look now in uh, what's happening after Daesh period, there is a difference. Because after 2003, there was so much destruction going on inside cities, on sites, etc. And there was little effort to change these things or to save things. And there was also like no real big international interest in stabilizing, strengthening the country. While after Daesh, one could say that things changed. One saw what's happening with the country if you leave it alone or not having specific measurements done to improve the situation, the security, the livelihood, etc. of people. It's just getting too weak and out of control. Uh, after uh, the period of Daesh, things change a lot. Especially if we look at the situation of Mosul now, and the situation of Baghdad after the Gulf War, they are like so, so different. Because with uh, defeating Daesh, directly the concentration and focus was, okay, we need to do something about the destructed areas. So all the prominent heritage sites from Mosul got fundings to be restored again. So when people see this, this automatically unconsciously gives you a hope that there is interest to save your identity because this is part of your identity your identity gets valued with this and this gives more to people than we would uh, actually think because when you only see destruction 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 in your life you have no hope you don't have a perspective but then when you see okay there is efforts to rebuild what is gone not only like to build new things but also to rebuild something that belongs to your past to your identity something that you might have not known that well but you have always passed by and it comes back to its glory as was before this is protecting your identity this is building up your identity without taking sides of political ways or religious uh, ways and this is very 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 important and this impacts this new generation that we have as we said with the demonstrations in 2019, this generation does not want an identity that has not to do with their heritage and their diversity because people take pride in heritage and in diversity. People are happy to have a neighborhood that is not very similar. People love when they have a neighborhood that is crowded with so many different languages and beliefs. Um, I have never seen like a neighborhood here where people say like, oh, we don't want to mix with other people or like that. No, people respect and accept each other more than what politics trying to, to tell us. So this is here a, a very, very important thing. Like these efforts that are done now currently in Iraq to safeguard heritage, to rebuild, restore, especially when we look at Mosul, are very, very important steps actually to build up a healthy new identity of this um, new generation that have not seen a prosper Iraq before, that has only saw violence and, uh, and war. 
And we can see this also like when we look at all these young people building up new startups, many of them taking the name of their brand from ancient languages or their logos are related to heritage or the products that they have have like names or images that has to do with heritage. So even like in the free market business, young people are trying to have modern products that have their roots or identity in heritage. So the desire of creating this new identity, building it on heritage, going away from conflict and politics is very much up to date now. And this is something that we need to continue feeding. So the desire of those young people to build up a new identity for themselves that has roots in their heritage and is going away from the conflicts that politics is causing is a very, very important thing because we can see it everywhere. And it's our duty who work in archaeology and heritage and all this to serve this, to feed this interest and this hunger of creating this new identity in a healthy way, in a not nationalistic way, not valuing ethnic groups to each other who is better or whatever. No, because this was done a hundred years ago. And this is something that we need to break again with decolonization. We need to create a more healthy connection, this new generation with their heritage. On that note, Lana, thank you very much for your contribution to the Nahrain Network podcast series. There's a lot to think about. I'm sure that Tari's work with you leading it will be very effective going forward in Iraq in light of both the challenges, but also the um, the nature of hopeful and aspirational change that I think uh, you've you know effectively expressing. Thank you, Lana, and I hope to uh, have a, another podcast with you in the near future. Perhaps speak about some of your on the ground activities. Thank you very much, Mahir. I'm very happy that I had the chance talking with you about these very very important topics, and I hope some people get inspired by it to continue this mission in supporting communities in having a healthy relationship with their heritage to preserve it for the future generation. And your podcast is one of these contributions and I'm very, very happy to be part of it. Thank you very much, Mahia. Thank you, Lana.